0: We're in Exodus, and we're in chapter 8, and we're in verse 20. If you'd like to open your Bible there and navigate on your device, Exodus 8, 20. We're going to take a look at uh, text into chapter 9, verse 12. The topic the magicians of Egypt can no longer stand in Moses' presence when excruciating boils break out on both man and beast. The title of our message. Bad boils, bad boils, what you're going to do when they come on you? Thank you. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the time that we've able to set aside right now to read your word, to have your Holy Spirit apply the word to our hearts. As always, Lord, we've come to be more like Jesus to see him in his glory and his grace, to know that your throne is a place of mercy and forgiveness. Lord, if we've come in here with burdens today, I pray that we could really be able to cast them on you, knowing that you care for us, that you would lift uh, our spirits, Lord, be the lifter of our heads. We're downtrodden, lift us up. Take our burdens, Lord, maybe even burdens that we've had for years and years and years. You can do that. Do it supernaturally do it lord because you love us help us through this text lord it's an ancient text with a modern meaning i pray that we would miss nothing that you want us to know we thank you and praise you in jesus name and those who agreed said amen the signs read no ice on our recent trip to southern california we noticed as we entered los angeles along i5 that people had hung handwritten signs on the overpasses no ice my first thought was that it was about ice cubes. Maybe it was a new way to save the environment by rationing water or by not using refrigerant and electricity to produce and to store ice. And so I was getting ready for a kind of a lukewarm uh, beverage weekend. <laughs> now, you guys are already snickering. You know that ICE is the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. ICE. The signs are protest against the deportation of illegal immigrants. California recently became a sanctuary state. The bill passed by our legislators and signed into law by our governor limits cooperation between local officials and ICE. North Carolina, not a sanctuary state, nor does it claim any sanctuary cities. Nevertheless, as of late December four people were enjoying sanctuary from deportation by taking refuge in North Carolina churches. One pastor here illegally from El Salvador has been living in a Durham church for the last six months. Houses of worship have a long history of being places of refuge for those wanted by the authorities. It's no longer true that if you get to a church, you can simply call base and be free from arrest. But in some cases, the authorities will still respect it. ICE has said publicly it generally avoids arrests at sensitive locations, including places of worship. Their policy doesn't rule out enforcement there in certain circumstances, such as instances relating to national security, terrorism, or public safety. I'm guessing that seeking sanctuary in a church in China is a bad idea, Authorities in northern China's coal country demolished a well-known Christian megachurch. The People's Armed Police Force used excavators and dynamite to destroy the Golden Lampstand Church in the city of Linfen in Shaanxi Province. China Aid, a U.S.-based Christian advocacy group, said local authorities planted explosives in an underground worship hall to demolish the building which was built with nearly $3 million in contributions from local worshipers in one of China's poorest regions. The church has over 50,000 members. Today in the book of Exodus, we continue with the series of 10 signs, commonly called 10 plagues, that God brought against Egypt. Beginning with the fourth sign, which is flies, God made a distinction between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. He says in verse 21 of chapter 8, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell. No swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. This distinction between the Hebrews and the Egyptians continued for the remaining signs. The Egyptians would be affected, but not the Hebrews. You might say that Goshen was a kind of sanctuary state in the midst of Egypt. Now, there was nothing special about Goshen, the area. It was the fact that the Hebrews were there that made it a refuge and a sanctuary. In our dispensation, the church is spiritual geography that is distinct from everything around it, it is or it should be a refuge and a sanctuary. As we work our way through these next three signs, I want to take a look at refuge and sanctuary. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, as a non-believer, you ought to seek sanctuary from the world. Number two, as a believer, you have your sanctuary in the Lord. Let's take a look, first of all, at the world. now. Every group has a vocabulary that is used by its insiders. I'm interested in coffee. It's sort of a hobby with me. I like making it probably more than I like drinking it, and I like drinking it a lot. I have maybe, don't judge me, 40 or 50 different coffee makers at home, and they're all really cute and fun. They don't cost very much. I'm not, I don't think I have a problem. I know some of you have 40 or 50 guns at home, so <coughs> let's, let's be real. Coffee has a uh, vocabulary for its insiders. Chemex, V60, Aeropress, Vacuum Brewer. Those are part of the modern language of coffee. If you know what any of those are, um, kudos to you. Did you know that we are in the third wave of coffee in the United States? Third wave coffee aspires to the highest form of culinary appreciation of coffee so that one may appreciate subtleties of flavor, varietal, and growing region similar to other complex consumable plant-derived products such as wine, tea, and chocolate. It also includes revival of alternative methods of coffee preparation such as vacuum brewing and pour-over brewing and devices like the Chemex and the Hario V60. And I talk to people all the time. I'm not a coffee snob. You can drink whatever coffee you want. You can drink instant coffee if you want. You can drink Starbucks coffee if you want. <laughs> I do that on trips. I consider it a necessary evil. <laughs> Although I refuse to go through the drive through I will never go through a Starbucks drive through Never. I should never say never, I guess, but... Anyway, Christians have a vocabulary. I ran across this in an article on what is labeled Christianese. The author says, think about the word conversion. It is filled with meaning for you from all the Bible studies, books, and talks you have absorbed. If you had never encountered the Christian faith, though, what imagery would conversion trigger in your mind? I usually hear it to describe a building project that makes the attic habitable, a loft conversion. I hear it as a term for comparing the relative value of money from different countries, a currency conversion, or as a way of changing the format of a document on a computer, file conversion in progress. Now, there's a word that we use all the time, which, while it makes perfect sense to us, might confuse a non-believer. It is the word world. We talk about the things of the world, or walking in the world, or returning to the world we cleverly advise people be of the world but not or be in the world but not of the world telling someone you're not of this world makes sense but it might get you a 72 hour hold from the authorities to complicate this even more we use cities or countries named in the bible to represent the world i remember a gal telling someone she had gotten her college degree from a school in babylon I was wondering if she had just gotten back from Iraq or if it was Babylon, New York. Then I realized she meant simply that it was a secular school. She got her degree from a UC, but she considered it Babylon because it was a worldly secular school. During a wedding ceremony, the pastor mentioned that the bride had recently returned from spending some time in Egypt. He didn't mean she had been on an archaeological dig at the pyramids, He meant she had been away from the Lord for a time, backslidden in the world. Now, as a Christian, I had trouble with some of those expressions. It took me some thinking. And so how much more the non-believer when we throw out some of that terminology? So we're talking about the world today. So I want to define it for our purposes. The world is the invisible spiritual system of evil dominated by Satan and all that it offers in opposition to God, to his word, and to his people. Egypt is a good type or an illustration of the world and all that it offers in opposition to God. For example, a little later in Exodus, after the Hebrews are free from slavery in Egypt, they nevertheless long for what they uh, have given up, they think. Verse, 16, or verse 3 of chapter 16 says, And the children of Israel said, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat, And when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And so they were willing to trade the spiritual revelation of the living God for a flesh pot back in Egypt. In another place, in uh, the book of Numbers, they exclaim, we remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. We had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic we wanted. And so they wanted to draw back from the spiritual ...into the material. As believers, we're no longer merely living in a material world. We are spiritual. We ought to approach life as if we are already seated in heavenly places. Hopefully, all this background helps you to understand what we mean... ...when we say that the non-believer ought to seek sanctuary from this world. So let's get into it, starting in verse 20 of chapter 8. "...and the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning... ...and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water... Then say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people, into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. In other words, it would be like living on a dairy. (laughs) I'm sorry, I had to do that. It's, It's the law. It's in the margin of my Bible. Literally, this says, God sent a swarm upon Egypt. In your Bible, you might see that flies is in italics. That means the translators added it to help the sentence make better sense. It does not specify what the swarm is. Tell them I'll get back to them. It may have been a variety of gross insects, not just flies. For example, in Psalm 78, verse 45 says, These swarms devoured them. That tells us that they were biting insects. And so uh, it, it's uh, probably not just flies or flies at all. Uh, it's probably a variety of the grossest insects that you can imagine. Verse 22 And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell that no swarm shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. Now, we made a big deal about why the Hebrews suffered alongside the Egyptians during the first three signs. When the water was blood and frogs and gnats multiplied, it happened over in Goshen too. We suffer alongside folks just as Jesus suffered alongside folks in order to identify with them, in order to have compassion upon them. God now made a distinction in order to show Pharaoh something more about his power and how he was far superior to all of Egypt's gods. A little at a time, God is showing Pharaoh his superiority. And so the first three plagues affected Israel as well. But now he says, hey, watch this. Uh, There's going to be a sign that affects only the Egyptians. And a little at a time, Pharaoh was getting a dose of how powerful God is. God seeking to change his heart and change his mind. Verse 24, and the Lord did so. Thick swarms came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. No one would admit that they'd watch the X-Files for service, so I'm not even going to ask uh, if you've seen the X-Files. But do you remember, they have comedy episodes every now and then that are kind of terrifying. And do you remember there was one where there was uh, aliens coming to try and make contact with the earth, but they came as cockroaches? Because they were thinking, you know, the idea was if you were an alien looking at the earth, you would want to come and address the number one form of life on earth, and from a distance, that would be the cockroach, and so they had all these weird cockroaches, and they would swarm people. It was pretty terrifying, and the most terrifying part of it was that during the show, all of a sudden, without warning, a giant cockroach crawled across the television screen in kind of a 3D mode, and you thought it was on your TV, and it just, it blew my, it still bothers me when I think about this. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to God in the land. Now, in the land was Pharaoh negotiating a compromise. There is no negotiating with God on essentials. Do you agree with that statement? Well, if you do, you might be in the minority, even among Christians who profess to follow God's word. Every year, the Oxford Dictionary announces their word of the year. In 2016, it was post-truth, a hyphenated word, post-truth. Here's what it means, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. In other words, your feelings have greater impact than the facts or the truth. And so you are post-truth. The truth doesn't matter to you because you have your feelings to tell you how to act. Christians have been applying post-truth in marriage for years. They divorce without biblical grounds, based mostly on feelings. The objective word of God gives way to subjective feelings. And that's why we must always submit our feelings to faith and obey God. And that's, that used to be normal Christianity, where you'd think, hey, this is what God said. You know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Remember, it was more than a bumper sticker, it was a worldview. Now, anymore, it's like, well, God said it, but this is how I feel about it, and my feelings are going to uh, direct my behavior. And so, verse 26, Moses said, it's not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? Now, there are many theories on what exactly the Egyptians would find abominable, No one knows for sure, but it's clear that Pharaoh understood what Moses meant. So this is a real issue, even though we don't know and don't need to know exactly what it's about. Verse 27 says, we will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord, our God, as he will command us. So Pharaoh said, I'll let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord, your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. Three days was too far for Pharaoh. Again, he sought to negotiate. It reminds me of post-truthers. Once you expose them to the black and white word of God, they still want to negotiate their own terms. Again, it used to be that you could pull out the Bible and say, hey, read this. What does that say and what does that mean? And, and people say, well, okay, I guess that settles it. And now it's like, yeah, I, that's what, I know what that means. It probably means that for everybody else, but that's not how I feel. God wants me to be happy if this feels so good, how can it be wrong? And it's really difficult because once, you, once a person is into post-truth thinking, it's really hard to grab their heart uh, because they're only going on their feelings. Verse 27, or excuse me, verse 29, then Moses said, I am indeed going out from you and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses didn't agree to Pharaoh's terms. He did agree to pray for Pharaoh. Praying for our enemies, not easy, but necessary. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. Now, those who try to see these events as having natural environmental causes cannot answer the fact that God ended them abruptly when he was called upon. There's no reason except embarrassment to shy away from the miraculous. And by embarrassment, I mean we don't want to sound supernatural for fear that folks will think us ignorant. But as I said last week, of course God does the supernatural, as long as it's something in the Word, it's part of the Word of God. I take it at face value unless there's a, a good reason not to. Uh, and so, um, you know, there's all, I've seen all kinds of specials. They're very creative on how these things could have naturally occurred, even in sequence. Um, but if we are always seeking the scientific explanation, then we're trying to reduce God to something that we can understand uh, in the physical realm when he dwells in a spiritual realm. And so God does miracles, he does the supernatural. Verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. So Pharaoh's on the ropes, but he's rope-a-doping by acting like he'd relent. Knockout punch is coming. Meantime, God is giving him space to repent. Now the next sign, beginning in chapter nine, a nightmare for PETA. Verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field. By the way, note that in the field because in a minute, there's going to be another plague on cattle and some people think it's a, a contradiction. If all the cattle are killed, how can there be a plague on the cattle? All the cattle in the field. And the horses in the field and the donkeys in the field, not the ones that are in the barn. So anyway, and on the camels, verse 3, and on the oxen and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day and all the livestock of Egypt died But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed, not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. Christian and non-Christian commentators try to explain this by pointing back to the swarm of insects as if the pestilence grew out of them. Uh, You know, somehow they did a bunch of biting and stuff and laid eggs on all these animals in the field. And so it was the direct result of the previous pestilence. But again, not true. And if these plagues can be explained naturally, then they are not signs. And so they are plagues, but they are first and foremost signs. God is showing Pharaoh his power. He's not just showing him the power of nature or nature gone wild or anything like that. God says, I'm going to bring this tomorrow, and I'm going to stop it when I stop it, and you're going to know that I am God. Now, each of the three of the first nine signs ends with a plague that comes upon Egypt unannounced. And so in verse 8, So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace, and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt, and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven, and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. Now, the very descriptive here, much more descriptive than our word, the Hebrew word for boil means to belch forth and an inflammatory pustule. Put those together, these guys all over their bodies had inflamed pustules that were belching. This is super gross. I don't want to get too gross. Actually, I do, but... I mean, you know how horrified you are when you have a little pimple? I mean, this is a boil. Everybody, don't don't raise your hand. If you ever had a boil, I mean, these things are huge and painful. And they are indeed inflamed, belching pustules. And when those things cut loose, you don't want to be anywhere near them. Now, let me read you, changing gears a little bit, let me read you something I ran across in an archaeological journal. The author says this, evidence for the plague of boils which God brought upon Egypt may have come to light. In 2009, Ed Casper wrote an article in which he proposed that the exodus pharaoh was Thutmose II. This is based upon recent CAT scans of the pharaoh's mummy, as well as quotes from the original archaeologists that examined the mummy back in 1886 and 1912 examinations and CAT scans revealed that Thutmose II had scarring on his flesh, which may have come from a skin disease consistent with that of boils. Other mummies of individuals who were alive at the same time as Thutmose II were also found to have the same scarring. Those mummies include his wife, the queen, her wet nurse, and her stepson, Thutmose III. File that under the category of maybe because we're not sure which pharaoh was the one Moses confronted. Alfred Edersheim proposes in his Old Testament Bible history that Thutmose II is best qualified to be the pharaoh of Exodus based on the fact that he had a brief, prosperous reign and then a sudden collapse with no son to succeed him. But other scholars are just as sure that the pharaoh was a Ramses. We don't know. Verse 11, "...and the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians." So, inflamed pustules were belching on all the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. The magicians, identified in the New Testament, at least two of them as Janus and Jambres, had replicated the first two signs. After they could not replicate the third, we sort of lost track of them. Now we see that they continued by Pharaoh's side, no doubt advising him. We called them magicians. They were sorcerers. They were wise men. They were magi. Uh, They were religious and spiritual advisors to the Pharaoh. Now they could no longer stand before Moses, meaning that Pharaoh might become more susceptible to God's pressure. Don't underestimate the power of evil influence. Eliminate it wherever possible. You parents already know this. Uh, It's getting harder and harder in uh, uh, the world of media and social media and all that to uh, eliminate evil influence. But you need to do a good job with that. Uh, Evil influence goes a long way to corrupting the already uh, deceitful human heart. And so these guys out of the picture, again, another clue that God is really working to try and open Pharaoh's heart, give him the opportunity to make the right decision. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. We talked about this phrase, hardening of the heart, uh, in, in the sense that uh, it's like us today, nation, the United Nations, let's say, giving rogue nations sanctions with the hope not that they will push them to the nuclear button, but quite the opposite. And so when it says the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, it means that the Lord's actions uh, revealed the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. God foreknew Pharaoh's response, but he did not determine it. God does not ask someone to do something he predetermines they cannot do. Uh, That would be a horrible thing for a human being to do. It's worse if God does it. And so, as I said, if anything, God is working on Pharaoh's heart to soften it. Now, if you're an Egyptian following this narrative, you'd realize there was a place of refuge from what was happening in the world. It was Goshen, not because of physical geography, but it was a place of refuge and sanctuary because that was where God's people dwelt. We know that at least some Egyptians will accompany the Hebrews out of Egypt into the wilderness. Some of them found sanctuary in the Lord's people. If you're not a believer, it isn't the physical catastrophes that are occurring with increasing frequency that you need sanctuary from. After all, Christians suffer alongside you in them. It is the spiritual catastrophes you need to fear. One author put it like this. He said, no creature so much needs the shelter and defense of a safe hiding place as man. His sources of danger are more than can be numbered. And with an infected nature, he travels an infested road. Beset with foes, he is in constant need of shelter and often cries out for deliverance. Now, this author says you have an infected nature. Really, it's much worse than an infection. You were born spiritually dead, complete with a sin nature. You therefore face eternal death, which is separation from God for eternity if you remain in your sins. And he says you travel an infested road. The world really is in the power of its God, Satan. It is designed to hold you spiritually captive. Now, you may think you're doing all right, enjoying life, maybe even doing good works, but your time here is probationary. It's to determine where you will live for eternity. If you aren't considering your own mortality and immortality, then you've been lulled into a false sense of security that will prove devastating upon your death. You cannot qualify for heaven by good works. Salvation can only be received as a gift when you have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, as a believer, you have your sanctuary in the Lord. We all know that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the Christian at the moment you're saved. Our individual bodies become his temple. We're further described as we gather together collectively as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not the room, but our being present in it makes it his temple. But I have more in mind the idea of sanctuary that Jeremiah wrote about Jeremiah 17, 12 says, A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. The first phrase should read, A throne of glory. And what he's saying here is, From the very beginning, God's throne of glory has been our sanctuary where we find refuge. When Adam and Eve sinned, God came immediately and explained he would provide them refuge and sanctuary. They were hiding, trying to cover themselves, and God said, No, I will provide you a refuge and be sanctuary for you. And there's a difference, by the way, between refuge and sanctuary. A refuge can provide temporary help, whereas sanctuary permanently provides for your greatest needs. People find refuge in the philosophies, in the psychologies, and in the religions of this world, but they all fall short because none of them has the power to transform you. Uh, All the world's religions and psychologies and philosophies depend on your effort. Every religion is a religion of good works and effort where you need to work your way to heaven. But you know what? You can't work your way to heaven. You can't get there by deeds. And so you might find temporary refuge uh, in some community of people that's religious or whatever, but you're not going to find sanctuary. You're not going to find that which will sustain you for time and in eternity. Sanctuary is another way of saying that God saved us, and he is saving us, and he will save us. Those are the three phases of your eternal life. You get saved. God justifies you. It's just as if you'd never sinned. And then he goes on saving you in the sense that he's making you more like Jesus Christ on a daily basis. That's called sanctification And one day, he will finally save you when you have a glorified body no longer capable of sin and are before him in heaven. Uh, Because of that, we would say that his refuge as sanctuary is unassailable. Now, you're scratching your head. You think, I go through lots of trials. I'm suffering right now. You can't tell me that I live in an unassailable sanctuary because I'm under assault right now. That's not the kind of sanctuary I'm talking about. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Quite some time ago, when we were first confronted with AIDS, uh, HIV and AIDS, I saw an interview with a terminally ill patient that I'll never forget. Uh, He had come to know Jesus Christ after contracting the disease, and he was on his deathbed in a hospital, and he was being interviewed. And here's what he said. He said, I'd rather have AIDS and know Jesus than not have AIDS and not know Jesus. That is sanctuary. That is an unassailable sanctuary where sin and death and the devil can have no part of your life. And there's, there's no one in any other religion or philosophy or psychology that can make that claim. No one can say, uh, I'm so glad I discovered Sigmund Freud, rather ha- because I know that I'm what? The, it's hopeless. But this gentleman can say, in, in an extreme case, I, I live in an unassailable sanctuary. My flesh is being destroyed, but uh, my spirit is being renewed day by day. On a less severe level, we all need refuge that is a sanctuary, and we should experience it in Jesus and among his gathered saints. If you're a Christian, this world is not your home. Your citizenship is elsewhere. It's in heaven. You're looking forward to the city whose builder and maker is God. No citizenship, far away from your true country, living in a foreign kingdom. We also read that we're strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Stranger translates to foreigner, and pilgrims can mean resident aliens. It sounds like you and I are immigrants on this earth. Find your refuge and sanctuary in Jesus and among His gathered people as you await His coming for us. Reject post-truth living and the subtle but sinister lure of finding satisfaction anywhere else or in anyone else.